First Peter chapter one, verse one. We open the book, Peter's letter, and we read this: Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, as we come to the book, we look and we see first that uh, the letter is uh, writ- you know, said here, written by Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I think it's noteworthy for us to look at Peter. You know, we looked a little bit in the intro as, as Peter as the author. And, um, but I want you to understand here these opening words and the importance that it would hold for these first century uh, readers, for the original readers here, as they hear... Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a direct endorsement from someone who was with Jesus, who was in Jesus's inner circle. This was a letter that came from someone who uh, spent a great deal of time with Jesus. But more than that, we see also is described as an apostle. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a number of reasons why this would have been important for the readers, but I think, I think you and I, um, you know, can kind of have some level of uh, connection with the first century hearers because what are the things that we are often after in uh, the books that we read? You want a first edition and you want the author to sign it, right? I mean, that's just kind of a part of life. You're like, okay, I have a connection with the author. I was there when it first came out. Uh, you know, maybe you uh, were somebody who went and you stood in line at, you know, at a book signing and you were there and uh, you kind of approached the table awkwardly and you were like, oh, hey, like, I really enjoyed the book. And you had like your kind of like awkward exchange with the author. Uh, you know, can you make it, you know, can you make it out to David? Like, you know, maybe like a personal message would be great. You know, you're trying to like step lightly. What you're really saying is like, oh, okay, like I really appreciate you. I want this guy to be my friend. You know, like maybe we can develop some sort of, uh, you know, exchange. There'll be some little nugget, some takeaway where we can be like, oh, yes, we, I went there and like, you know, I was like, hey, did you watch that football game? And he was like, yeah, I watched that football game. And then we had to think, and that's like the story that you begin to tell every time. Oh yeah, I've met that person. Look at, here's the sign, they signed my book. We, we have, you know, a little bit of that understanding there. We have a little bit of uh, that portion of, of the kind of culture surrounding writing and authorship that, that kind of resonates with us. But beyond that, this also would have been important uh, because of who Peter was connected to. Peter is not only one of the original disciples that have been like, oh, okay, like this guy, he know, he's like one of the higher people up. He knows what's happening. He can kind of speak with some authority. 
He was not only uh, one of the disciples, but he's called an apostle. And it's nice when you can get a little bit of instruction from somebody who has some credibility, somebody who has uh, some authority to the words that they are sharing. It's nice to have that confidence that you have uh, someone else's experience, someone else's leadership, someone else's direction to back up the words that they are writing. You know, uh, as I've been in this season of starting the new job in the first two weeks, uh, I didn't really know who held the authority in the different um, in the different roles that I interacted with at work. You know, it was like, okay, like I thought I was getting something approved by somebody who had authority come to find out that like, oh, that, that was not the case. And then they're like, why did you do that? And I was like, oh, I thought that person had the authority. And then they didn't. And then now I have a little bit of experience in saying like, okay, like I know who has the authority and I know this person can really come and, and look at the work that I've done or they can give me their message and empower me to accomplish something on their behalf or to speak on their behalf or to share on their behalf. Uh, or even has given me the ability to stand in the midst of hardship and difficulty with the words that they share. For me, this is often the case because with my job, there are so many uncertainties surrounding me and uh, working with, uh, you know, such uh, high profile national media outlets and this and that. We're often like on a deadline and we're waiting and and I need to be able to stand in the midst of those things, uh, but I have the ability to fall back on the words of my manager, my boss, and to say, look, this is my instruction. I have a way that says I did not accomplish that because I was told not to accomplish that. Or I, I have the ability to stand in the midst of people saying, oh, I want this now, or you should do this. I have the confidence to say, you know, there's hardship and difficulty surrounding, but having that confidence. And this for Peter is what he's wanting to communicate. Now, this would have been especially, reson would have resonated with the original hearers quite a lot because Peter was the original second guesser. He was the guy who was extremely cold or extremely hot. He went to both extremes. He was the person who came in and he was like, yeah, let's charge. And Jesus is like, no, we're not charging. Like, we're not doing that, right? Or Peter would be like, oh, like I'm, you know, Jesus would be like, oh, like, let's, it's time to like stay up and pray. And Peter's like, I'm going to sleep. <sighs> He's knocking out. There's a number of things that Peter was always the guy that was blowing it. And Peter was the one who had experienced great highs, great lows. He was the one who had denied Christ, but yet was restored by Jesus. It's Peter who experiences the sufferings and difficulties, much like Peter's readers are experiencing. The original writers or the original hearers of his message would have been under persecution that would have been similar. And so to say that Peter writes, he writes from experience. He writes from the perspective of one who was told to do something and he didn't do it, but yet God's grace was sufficient. He writes from the perspective of one who was able to communicate uh, and, and to rightly say Biblical truths that are theologically rich, such as he communicated there in Mark chapter 8 to the disciples and to Jesus. This is Jesus is the Son of God. But then also flailed just in the next verse where Jesus has to call him out and be like, get behind me, Satan. He has the, the ability 
to speak from a place of great victories and great defeats. And I think when you're in the midst of suffering, that's what you want. You want to hear that there is a time you want to speak to someone who or you want to speak to someone who has been there, who has experienced great defeat but yet has come out on the other side. And Peter wants to instill this confidence. He wants to instill this message to his hearers. Now, here is the message that he's trying to get across. That this group of people that he's writing to, though they are under uh, persecution, though they are under suffering, though they are under uh, threat, they are members of the household of faith. They belong to the people of God and they comprise the church. He's trying to remind them that they are already accepted, that they belong to him and they comprise God's New Testament people, his new covenant people. He gets to this in chapter 2. But he starts to break this down for us uh, very, uh, just very quickly in the beginning. Now, Peter starts off and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, normally what this word means here is just uh, apostle means sent one, sent one, someone who's a messenger. Uh, and that's typically how this would, uh, what would it would have meant that you are someone who has been sent. But here, what Peter's saying is that he has been specifically designated as an apostle, as a sent one, as a messenger, and an authoritative messenger of the gospel, and his authority is rooted in Jesus Christ. And so when he communicates the gospel, when he breaks down the way that Christians ought to live and the way they ought not to live, he's not speaking from a place of merely giving good advice. But he is communicating the words that God has given him to lead the church. He's not coming with, oh, I've got some, here's my personal opinion and here's how I think you guys ought to live. He's saying, this is the way that Jesus is leading the church. He's not speaking from a personal perspective, but rather from the empowerment, the authority of Jesus Christ. And so he writes to this group. Those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, these words for us would, you know, we're just kind of like, okay, great. Like there's probably some sort of uh, history book where we can go and look at this area and we can see, uh, you know, this group of people. They were probably held captive somewhere and they were now exiles in this specific land and they've settled in these specific areas. But for the original readers, that would have not been their understanding. They would not have considered this uh, in this specific way. Peter wants them to understand a couple things, as we said, that they belong to God, that they don't belong where they currently live, that they're not rooted there, and that they are a part of the family of God that will be brought together again. First, we see that they belong to God. Peter describes these Christians as those who are elect. They are chosen by God. They are brought into the family of God. At the cross, Jesus makes it possible 
through his death, through his resurrection, for a new people to be formed. Peter will get to this in like this epic breakdown, mic drop moment in chapter 2. I'm so excited for you guys to get there. You could get there and read it again because every time you read it over and over and over, like every time you're just like, that is unreal. That is unreal. And it just gives life to your soul when you read it and confidence. It's so good. Uh, Don't read it right now. But these words that he's trying to communicate, this message that he's trying to communicate here is that this group of people have been brought in, that they are elected, that they are chosen at, uh, well, he'll get to how they're chosen, but they are chosen, they're brought into the family of God, and this was accomplished through the cross. Jesus brings together his church, his new people, through the cross. The way that previously God and man were in relationship together was in the keeping of the law. We've seen this uh, throughout the biblical trajectory. The narrative that comes all the way from Genesis to the cross, it was on the basis of keeping the covenant and following the laws of God that said that you were in right relationship with him. This was about not only man's desire to know God and to be near to God, but also God knowing that that could never happen, coming down and dwelling among his people. This is, again, what we've seen at Sinai. As we studied through the book of Exodus, we saw there that God dwelt upon uh, the mountain for a period there and invited Moses into the series of exchanges and Moses acting as the mediator there between God and man foreshadowing Christ's work, we see that this was always the intention. And it was there at Sinai that God said, you guys, you've not had a way to relate to me, but now come and assemble yourselves at the foot of Mount Sinai and I will give you instructions on how you are to be my people. And we find now at Golgotha, the place of the skull, when Jesus is upon the cross on that mountain there, It is in that moment that he is assembling a new people, gathering all people to himself from across the earth, making a new nation, a new Israel, and saying, you now are my chosen people when you trust in me for salvation. You now belong to me. It's through his work at the cross that this is accomplished. And what Peter is doing here by saying that these people are these elect exiles, he's essentially beginning to foreshadow what he gets to in chapter 2. This church that is assembled called the chosen people. Now, they are called elect, but they are also called exiles of the dispersion. Now, as we said, this would not have resonated in the same way that we would naturally look at this and say, okay, historically, there's probably some sort of uh, you know, captivity and exile and something that happens here. Because to be exiled throughout the entire New Testament was usually a punishment. It was usually something that you experienced, uh, you know, that you were maybe a part of the people. But because of, uh, you know, what you've done or your uncleanness or uh, your sinfulness, you were kicked out of the camp. You were sent outside of the camp and you, you were put out to another nation. You were not allowed to come back. And that's usually how we typically think about this, you know, that we... Think about being exiled. Oh, like you can never come back. You can never be with that group of people again. But Peter here, he says that we are exiled. 
We are exiles, and these people here are exiles in this world because they are God's chosen people, his elect. And therefore, they are exiles. They don't belong here. When you become a part of God's family, all of a sudden, everything else becomes foreign. You realize, like, none of this looks familiar anymore. Like, I don't really belong here. There's not a place, this is not a place of rest for me. This isn't a place for me to settle down. For Peter, he's communicating to these different groups in these different cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, that these people, they are Christians. They are living in exile, not in a literal sense, and that they previously belonged to the nation of Israel. Most of these uh, cities and most of these people that he's writing to is primarily Gentile people. They're not even a part of the Jewish nation anyways. They're not part of Israel in the first place. But what he's trying to say is, when you're exiled, well, I'm, he's saying, I'm, I'm remarking that this group, you people who I'm writing to, you are all a part of one new nation. Even though you come from different backgrounds, even though you come from different ethnicities and cultures, in Christ, you are made one. And this is not your home. These Christians, you and I, are exiles because we suffer for our faith in this world. We experience the suffering as exiles. Because we've been chosen by God, because we've been brought into his family, all of a sudden we don't fit with the status quo. We don't fit with things that surround us. And when you are not fitting in with things surrounding you, people start to get annoyed. People start to get frustrated with you that you won't participate in their activities and you begin to experience difficulty, hardship, suffering in this world that finds your way of living, your way of thinking, your way of recognizing Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. They find that upside down, annoying, obnoxious. And so just being a part of the family of God means that you're in exile here upon the earth. But be encouraged, you're in good company. Jesus himself says in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So you're not on your own, friends. You're not out there experiencing hardship and difficulty by yourself. You are not the only one. And we don't even have to experience that kinship with each other, saying like, oh, we're all going through it together. We know that Jesus went before us. And he, who was the, the only perfect person to ever live, the only person to ever do it right, to live righteously, he experienced this. He says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so this status of being exiled is on the basis of not belonging. It's on the basis of not belonging. This is because our citizenship 
is in heaven rather than here upon the earth. There's no place of rest for us in this world. Now, we are in a moment, uh, you know, culturally here uh, in America where there is a lot of talk about acceptance and accepting, you know, people with different uh, immigration statuses and different backgrounds and different experiences there. And the fight there is to say, oh, you are all, you know, everyone's welcome and no matter what your background is and this and that. And there is some merit to these uh, claims and these the merit to the way that this is communicated because we recognize primarily that God is the creator of all people and we are made in his image. And so merely being a human made in the image of God means you have specific worth because you were fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in the womb of your mother. And so every single person has worth. But beyond this, then it comes down to uh, cultural values and preferences about uh, work ethic and style and crime and family structure and decision making and how we deal with fine. All of these things start to come into play. And the, the real, you know, kind of voices are saying not all of these cultures have equal worth or they all have equal worth. And it's our tendency to want to pick a side. But you know where we live in the tension. The scriptures say that no culture is pure. No culture is completely worthless. And no culture is completely uh, full of worth. But rather, the only thing that is uh, worth, worth anything is living to God's glory. And so we reject the things that are against God's glory and oppose him. We receive the things that are outright true and glorify God and, and they line up with the scriptures. And then the things that seem like they could be true or there could be uh, that are true but are being misused, we redeem those for God's glory. We take those and rescue them from the ways that the world and cultures are perverting these things. And we put them into a proper place where God can then be glorified. But nobody likes that. <laughs> and so therefore, there's no place of rest for us in this world. Because we are seeking a, a, an everlasting kingdom. One that is unshakable. We're not seeking to settle on either side. We're not seeking to hold positions that are so polarizing that they are against another. We are coming through and trying to align ourselves with the truth of Scripture, with the Creator of all things. And it's just never going to happen aside from God's rule and reign. Our citizenship is not upon the earth, and so therefore, we're never going to feel comfortable here. We should not feel comfortable here. This isn't a place for us to rest. This isn't a place for us to settle down. This isn't a place for us to start to coast. You should always be in a place where you're feeling uncomfortable, but at peace. Not uncomfortable and full of anxiety and fear, but uncomfortable, but at peace. But you can only have that peace 
when it comes from Jesus. If you have anxiety and fear, it's because you are trying to control your own life. You're trying to control what is ahead. You're trying to protect yourself and insulate yourself from the things that surround. But only Jesus brings the peace that allows you to stand fast in the midst of suffering, difficulty, the uncomfortable life. This is why Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment, joy in Christ. Enjoying Jesus, knowing him is what life is about, and enjoying him. He doesn't say, I've learned the secret of having lots of money and little money, like when you have lots of money, like you just be careful not to spend all your money. When you have a little money, like just don't buy expensive things. Like that's not his solution. He doesn't give you advice based upon your circumstance, but he gives us direction based upon living joyfully in the midst of any circumstance. And so the question is how then do we survive? We recognize that as exiles and strangers, when we recognize that we don't belong here, we gain valuable perspective. If you're living in a, in a way where you don't want to recognize that you don't belong here, if you're like, oh, well, I can see how we belong here, you're never going to have victory because you're trying to find a way to get comfortable. But as soon as you recognize that we don't belong here, this is not our final home, this is not the place where we will settle forever, you gain valuable perspective. You have to remember we are part of the family of God. And when you remember this, then you remember you have all the rights and privileges that are available to you as a member of the family of God. And you are brought into that family not because of your worth. You haven't done anything to earn it. You haven't done anything to make yourself uh, worthy of being a part of this family. But because God has brought you in through his grace. It's his work, his decision, his love set upon you, bringing you in. When you remember this, then you don't have to worry about fighting for the cultural standards. You don't have to worry about, uh, you know, being accepted by others because you are already remembering that you are a part of his family. And so we don't strive for acceptance here. We've already been accepted by God. We don't strive to prove that we belong or that we have worth. Being accepted here is not going to happen. And it's not worth the effort anyways. Because as soon as you are accepted, you're going to do something else to fall out of favor with somebody else. And then you're going to have to reprove that you belong and that you deserve to be accepted. Only Jesus sees the end from the beginning. He looks at your entire track record of failure and says, I want you to come into my family. I know all the ways that we don't even know that we are still to fail and still says, you're mine. You are there. I see that you cannot rescue yourself and I have so set my love upon you that I will lay down my life for you. Peter writes, not to Jews, but to Gentiles, and so he calls this group, the Dispersion, and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, trying to communicate to them that you so belong, you're so accepted that I'm, you know, really lumping you in with the old ways that Israel would have been described. 
You are the new Israel, he's essentially saying. And then he comes to verse 2 and breaks down a little bit of the way that this happens. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, Peter breaks down for us three or four ways here that, that I guess it's three ways, that we are accepted, that we are brought into the family of God. And he does this in the most interesting way because what he does here is he, he rolls it out in a Trinitarian way. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He's laying out for us the early doctrine of the church. This is just one place where he mentions uh, the Trinity, these three persons of the Godhead, but yet one God. He rolls out for us this doctrine in a Trinitarian way. But I want you also to see in doing that, he doesn't offer these things as distinct meanings. The foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, sprinkling with his blood, these all mean the same thing. As we go through, three persons, one God. Three statements, one meaning. He lays this out for us in a way so that we might understand the different facets in which God works to rescue us, to save us. First, the foreknowledge of God. Those who are rescued, these people who are now called exiles, are foreknown by God the Father. He foresaw that they would be his people. From the beginning, he foresees that they are going to be a part of his covenant. And that he would demonstrate his grace. He sees this from the beginning. Now, to us, we're like, okay, like that sounds good. <laughs> that sounds great. But consider, consider the author again. Who's saying this? Peter. This would have been a radical, just a radical, radical statement that God sees this from the beginning. What he's saying is it was God, it was always God's plan. It was never not God's plan to rescue the Gentiles. Remember Peter, he was, he was pretty like fiery there for a while. Uh, you know, when he was trying to be like kind of like double-minded there in Jerusalem for a bit. Paul tells us like, oh, when I came to Jerusalem, you know, Peter was there. He was eating with the Gentiles. But as soon as like the Jews came, he was like, oh, I'm out of here. You know, you know, you know, you know. He, he backed on out of there real quick. To, oh, yeah, I'm with those Gentiles. He's kind of acting like, oh, like they were kind of, you know, like they're, they're fine here now. They're fine that we kind of like let them in the back door. But like, you know. It wasn't really a part of the plan. You know, I don't really want anyone to know that I was with them. He kind of had like this attitude about them, even though he was the one to, to open kind of the gates to let them in. But he sees, we see that Peter is writing, Peter as a Jew writing to say that it was always God's plan to incorporate the Gentiles. That it was always his plan to bring them in. It wasn't the plan to only be like, okay, nation of Israel, you were the only people that were letting in. And like, if, if anybody else comes in, then they have to be a member of the nation of Israel and they have to change all this stuff and culture and background. They have to start living like us. 
Certainly that was a part of it for a moment. But what Peter recognizes now that this was from the beginning God's plan. And so these exiles, these Gentiles who are experiencing suffering, who Peter's writing to give encouragement to, he's trying to tell them this. Guys, don't get discouraged because it was always God's plan to save you. You might be going through a difficult time. You might be going through hardship. But from the beginning, he saw you. You're not an afterthought. He always wanted to incorporate you in. You were foreknown by God the Father. What he's doing here is not only reminding them that they're a part of the family, that God planned for them to be a part of the family, but they're showing, Peter's showing God's sovereignty, how big he is, and that God is the one who is initiating salvation. The second term we get to here is in sanctification of the Spirit. We find that the Spirit is the source of their sanctification. Now, normally, we can recognize here that when we talk about sanctification and in other portions of the scriptures, when we talk about sanctification, that word uh, means what it means to be set apart, uh, to be consecrated, to be put pulled away from something. And usually this word is used in description of Christian growth, being sanctified, to be set apart. But here, being set apart, being sanctified, means being set apart from death to life. This is talking about a moment of conversion. When someone comes to a place where they are dead in their sins, in their trespasses, but then become a part of God's new people, holy, set apart from the world. And so as the truth of the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit being at work applies that word to our hearts, and brings people from death to life. Sanctification in the Spirit, the moments there of conversion where the Holy Spirit is doing that work of putting the seal, the guarantee, as Paul writes, upon the believer. Then we find, third, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, it's not just making this choice and converting, but you have to live the life. Obedience to Christ. Conversion, regeneration here, uh, is followed by obedience. It's not obedience that earns you conversion, but rather after you become a part of the family of God, then you submit yourself to Christ and to the gospel. And this conversion here is described as the sprinkling with his blood. Now, this term here is kind of two important things that I want to highlight for you. First, describes receiving the cleansing of the blood of Christ. First, in Hebrews chapter 9. You put a life bookmark here because it's like a good section you could always come back for. Hebrews chapter 9. Maybe just the book of Hebrews, life bookmark. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How radical is that? That's, that's insane. Many of you were with us as we went uh, to, uh, I don't remember where we went, but we went out to that one huge field. I don't remember what city it was in. Where they had like the life-size tabernacle and we went on like the tour and we walked through that as we were studying the book of Exodus. And they had like the little audio tour and we went there and you approach the different stations and you go and you make your, you throw like your wood into the fire and like, you know, you like, act like you're like sprinkling the blood and doing all that. These priests would have to do this to earn entrance into the tabernacle. This would happen day after day after day, the, the same path that we went through. And they did this, Hebrews tells us, because the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to cleanse them, to purify them. But Jesus comes one time sprinkling his own blood, making himself our sacrifice and purifying us once and for all, eternally. And so it's through the sprinkling of his blood that we obtain the benefits of his death. That we are allowed access and entrance into the tabernacle, into the temple, into the Holy of Holies to know and enjoy God directly because of what he has done. We don't have to go through the rituals. We don't have to have other people go through the rituals for us of purifying us because Jesus has cleansed us once and for all. The second place we find this sprinkling, well, not the second place, the second place we're going to mention, this mentioned other places. The second place we're going to look at here is in Exodus chapter 24. This is the OG reference to this in uh, the institution of this new covenant. Remember, we talked earlier at the beginning of uh, the sermon here about God meeting Israel upon the mountain there at Sinai. Separating them out to call them a new people. And before he did this with the people, he called out the leaders, the priests, the ones who would be separated to him and making a covenant with them. We find the description here in Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the institution of God's covenant with his people. That he will keep up his end and they will keep up their end. And when we are sprinkled 
here, Peter says, with the blood of Jesus, we are brought into his family and we are partakers of the new covenants. Just as this covenant was made uh, here in the book of Exodus with the people of Israel, by being sprinkled with his blood, the blood of Jesus, it is being said that we are a part of the new covenant. That Jesus will take our punishment. He will be the sacrifice on our behalf. These things were brought about for our benefit because the children of Israel would have to make regular cleansings, regular trips to the altar all throughout life. But it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us as we are sprinkled with his blood Every single day, we are made clean because of his work. We don't have to go and offer these sacrifices, but we should live in obedience to his word. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the cleansing blood of Christ that is in use as we walk in the light. We have fellowship with the light. It's his blood that is there reminding us that we are a part of his family. And so, as we look at this summary, we find that it's the Trinitarian reference that's put in place. The Father, the Spirit, the Son, sanctification, foreknowledge, the obedience, the sprinkling of blood. These are three different ways of describing believers coming to faith. The Father foreknows. The Spirit does the work of sanctifying, sealing His people with the promise, and the Son cleansing. And it's no wonder that Peter ends with these simple words, his greeting, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter says, this message is one of grace. Like, You weren't a part of the people of Israel. You didn't belong, but it's by God's grace that you belong. It's by His work that you belong. Nothing that you've done, readers, nothing that you've done, church, is worthy of you being a part of His family. But it's His grace, His blessing upon you that has brought you into His family. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's when we stand in that grace of God, when we stand in that acceptance of belonging to God, that we then experience that peace of God. You can't have that apart from God's grace because you're the one then striving for justifying your life, for validating your existence. You can't have that peace because that's just, you know, you're going to operate on fear and anxiety. But it's only God's grace that brings about his peace. And he prayed this, that grace and peace would be multiplied in the lives of his hearers.
I, th- I think that that is a wonderful thing for us to take hold of. Not that we would just have God's grace and his peace, but that we need it to be multiplied, that we need it to be made, made more of. We need to, to emphasize this. Because I think it's easy for us to be like the disciples who were with Jesus in the boat and look around at the wind and the waves and be like, oh my goodness, we are in trouble. But when we are rightly having a view of God, when we are rightly having a view of God's sovereignty, of the finished work of Christ, then when those things come up before us and we're like, okay, like Jesus can just say like stop waves and then you don't have to worry about it. Right? This is the thing that resonated with his disciples. When they went and woke him up, he didn't come up and, you know, all of a sudden get, become like the conductor of some orchestra where he was like, okay, I'm going like to do like these like hand motions and like, okay, now you quiet down a little bit. Like that would have been like really interesting looking. But he came up and what he did instead was give them a bigger view of God's sovereignty, of who he was in his nature, in speaking to creation in the way that creation was spoken into existence. He didn't come up and do the wave of the hands and this and that. He just came up and said, peace. And then it was just like, everything just chill. That probably was more powerful (laughs) than an interesting motion and like you can feel it coming down slowly. And that's why it's described that the disciples then say, who is this that the wind and waves obey him? That he can just speak. This is the word that Peter wants to get to his readers because we live in tumultuous times. We live in times of suffering, hardship, difficulty, not only that come from the outside, but the tumult of our own souls where we're trying to find out what we're doing in life we're trying to discuss you know in the war of our soul about what we the way that we ought to live the people we ought to be in relationship with we need the peace of god in our lives and this only comes by his grace not by our own doing but by recognizing that it's his work his effort his love that has been set upon us. And when we have recognized that grace, when we experience that peace, then you realize there's nowhere else to go. Where else are you going to go? You want to be where it's most peaceful. You want to be where you have true safety and security. There's nowhere else to run. Anywhere you go, it's like you know running out of the, the eye of the storm. You're running out into hardship and difficulty. But if you stay with Jesus, you stay under his protection. You stay under his direction. You stay under his leading. And he always leads you to a place where you will be in peace, where you will flourish, but where you will enjoy him most. Knowing and enjoying him. Not saying it won't be hard, but it will be peaceful in the midst of hard peaceful in the midst of difficulty and you will enjoy Jesus when you realize he's exactly what you need. And that's what he's been trying to tell you all along.
Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness to us. For pursuing us, Lord, even when we weren't aware that you were pursuing us. For pursuing us when we were mad at you for pursuing us. For coming after us. Um, even when we couldn't really, we could see what you were trying to do, but we didn't like it. Lord, you know what is best for us. And so, Lord, we want to we want to grow in our trust of you. As the disciples uh, asked for faith, Lord, uh, we similarly ask for this faith. Lord, increase our faith. Give us a more direct view of the grace that you've shown us, of your love poured out for us at the cross. Lord, we're thankful that you have foreknown us. We're thankful that you have sanctified us by your Holy Spirit. We're thankful that you've sprinkled us with your blood and brought us into your family. Lord, we know that our own efforts, our own works, would, would not cut it. They're not enough, and we could never do it on our own. And so, Lord, we confess this morning that we need you. We need you to change us, to transform us, empower us by your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, now we want to come and we want to respond in worship. And so, Lord, remind us of who you are. Help us now to take our eyes off of ourselves and to look at your majesty, at your glory, at your worth and to respond in worship, praise, thanksgiving. We love you. Amen.